Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. You know, I was just thinking about this. For the last three years, one of my big complaints about that huge activist push for renewable energy or electric vehicles has been it's been absolutely devoid of practicality. And that's what we're bumping into. Well, today, and I've been looking forward to this, we're going to talk to the author of the book, Cobalt Red, an incredibly important book that discusses the use of child labor, uh, slave labor conditions in the Congo, where what? 75% of the cobalt comes from for your cell phone, your batteries, and of course, uh, if we are talking electric vehicles, your computer, that kind of stuff. It's a subject that we've avoided. Yes, it should have been on the agenda years ago. Should have been on the COP 26, 27, whatever number they're at agenda. It is not. And we're talking about the most horrific mining conditions in the world. And yet we're sitting there and we're ignoring it. Sorry, I can go on and on. I don't have to because the author, Siddharth Kara, is with me coming up in the show. So stay tuned for that. Uh, also, much to talk about the markets, about the interest rate scenario, how people's sentiment is going up and down. I think, again, the Federal Reserve has given us clear indication that rates are going higher for longer than I think a lot of investors anticipated. So again, I'll get to that with Victor Dare. I'll get that with Michael Levy. Plus, of course, I've got Ozzy uh, coming by. Here's an interesting thing, though. He says, you know, when we get these listing numbers, they're always understated. And he tells us why and the significance. Uh, Yes, we had a real estate market uh, and sales activity that was the worst since 2009. But that's actually what Ozzy's been warning about. We'll talk more about that, of course. And I've got a Goofy Award, and it's a good one. It's a very good Goofy Award this week, but a shocking stat of the week. I've got a quote of the week, so lots of reasons to stay with us. I hope you do. But first, CBC President Catherine Tate took another unprecedented step of wading into federal politics. I mean, nobody has done that as the head of the CBC before by directly accusing conservative leader Pierre Polyev of stoking hatred against the CBC by declaring he's going to defund the national broadcaster if indeed he's elected prime minister. In Ms. Tate's words, in quotes, I think they feel that CBC is a mouthpiece for the liberal government, end of quote. Well, she might want to consider why, well before Pierre Polyev was leader, someone like Paul Wells, come on, he's one of the senior political commentators in this country. He called the CBC the government's most spectacular public relations asset. She might want to do a little more soul searching as to why, after watching the CBC's Rosemary Barton interview Canada's Chief Health Officer Theresa Tom, former BC NDP Premier Ujjal Dosanjh tweeted in quotes, such softball interviews do make people wonder about the journalistic independence of the CBC. She might want to ask why Tara Henley resigned from the CBC in December 2021, was after eight years in the job, and she stated that to work at the CBC is to, in quotes, sign on enthusiastically to a radical political agenda that originated on Ivy League campuses in the U.S. and spread through American social media platforms that monetize outrage and stoke societal divisions. It's to pretend that the woke worldview is near universal, end of quote. Well, it's certainly not universal, but many would suggest that it is at the CBC. But more troubling, by the way, was her comment that to work at the CBC is, in quotes, to consent to the idea that a growing list of subjects are off the table, that dialogue itself can be harmful, that the big issues of our time are already settled. It is to capitulate to certainty, to shut down critical thinking, to stamp out curiosity, end of quote. Yeah, that should worry you. I mean, there's no sign, by the way, that the head of the CBC even wonders why these people are saying that. Again, this is all well before Pierre Polyevre was in the spotlight. As the old saying goes, denial is not just a river in Africa. But some of the criticisms, like subjects and some points of view off the table, or accusations of parroting the government narrative, especially during COVID, well, of course, they could be leveled at the entire mainstream media. But they don't receive $1.2 of our tax dollars. Although that seems to be going up on a regular basis. As for the bias... Well, again, before Mr. Pauly Ever was conservative leader, I think the capper, and I mean it was a capper for many, during the 2019 federal election, when the CBC took the unprecedented step of suing the Conservative Party of Canada. Why? They used a few seconds of the federal leaders' debate in which Prime Minister Trudeau states, look at what we've done. The Tories followed with a lot of negative examples. 
In other words, a typical political ad. But suing? And suing the Conservative Party was the main anchor of the CBC, political anchor, election anchor, Rosemary Barton, reporter John Paul Tasker, which, by the way, someone at the CBC finally figured out a few days later that was destroying their credibility in any claim of impartiality. So sorry, Mrs. Tate, Ms. Tate. You don't get to pretend that didn't happen. And whoever was responsible for that decision to sue the Conservatives during an election, my God, did more to hurt the claim of impartiality of the CBC than the current Conservative leader could dream of. And just so you know, by the way, the federal court dismissed the CBC's lawsuit, echoing numerous experts who said the suit was not only unprecedented during a campaign, but a sure loser. A loser, by the way, that costs you the taxpayers' money. But that's not all. During that 2019 election campaign, and again, by the way, in the fall 2021 campaign, the biggest unions representing CBC employees, including journalists, Unifor, and the Canadian Media Guild, both registered as third-party spenders with Election Canada specifically to oppose the Conservatives. How could Ms. Tate be surprised but people think the CBC is pro-liberal, which, by the way, contravenes the CBC's code of journalistic standards and practices, which states, in quotes, the expression of personal opinion on controversial subjects, including politics, can undermine the credibility of CBC journalism and erode the trust in our audience, end of quote. Well, as the polls show, that erosion of trust has already happened. That's what the CBC is dealing with. Now, I want to be fair. It's not just the CBC. The entire legacy media faces the same challenges when it comes to trust. You know, and maybe not a surprise. I haven't seen anybody own up to hyping and perpetrating for over two years the phony Russiagate story. Nor do the recent revelations regarding Hunter Biden's laptop or the Twitter leaks regarding censorship during COVID. You know, a Gallup poll in the U.S. this week echoes similar results in Canada, where over half the public thinks the mainstream media actually intends to misinform the public and are more concerned with supporting an ideology or political position than with informing the public. As I said, it's not just the CBC. But the CBC themselves, well, they set themselves up to be criticized because they're so self-righteous, at least statements made by Catherine Tate. Think about this. In testimony before the Commons Heritage Committee in 2019, she said in quotes, at a time when disinformation is undermining trust in our institutions and democracy, we remain Canada's most trusted source of news and information, end of quote. But she went on to state that the CBC is the beacon of truth. Well, I think Canadians who are paying attention would choke on that. I can give you lots of examples, but you don't have to go further than the trucker's convoy. Where the, give you some examples here, at least. CBC falsely reported the Freedom Convoy supporters were caught on camera dancing on the tomb of the unknown soldier. Not true. Incident involved a single local woman with no connection to the convoy. The CBC falsely claimed economic losses from the protest totaled, in their words, up to $200 million. Actual compensation payment was 12.9. Cabinet members, including our Attorney General David Lametti, repeatedly said they relied on CBC stories as justification for invoking the Emergencies Act against protesters but especially false stories like the protest was being financed by foreigners. Well, of course, that proved to be false. I mean, there are other examples of either false or biased reporting. As they and other members of the mainstream media parroted the official government line. My point is this. Instead of focusing on Pierre Poilievre, Catherine Tate is long past due having a look at her own shop there. Better focusing on restoring that trust. You know, admitting past errors. The ombudsman does on occasion, but does she? Does a management? How about inviting opposing views that don't agree with the government narrative? I mean, I can go on. They're not asking my opinion on that. But the fact remains, the trust is at an all-time low. And that's what she should be focused on. And this was happening way before we had a new conservative leader. Hey, just a reminder, by the way, and I will remind you of this, a little fair warning. You know, I'm looking for help. It's as simple as that. I'm looking for help. Ozzy and I are doing the Polar Plunge. I've got Rob Levy joining us now from Border Gold. I've got my brother Gordon Campbell's going to jump, plunge in the cold water. I want to invite you to join us because that's the way we'll raise more money. You can bring your circle of friends in who would love to see you turn ice blue 
We're going to do it on March 4th, and we're doing ours on English Bay outside the Sylvia Hotel in Vancouver. There's many other plunges taking place, but I'm saying that's where this one's taking place. And I think for many, just the prospect of seeing me cry should be enough to get you to donate. But of course, every donation is tax deductible. It's not that expensive. And this is one of those things where if we all chip in, if we all do a little bit, if we all say, hey, we care, uh, then we can make a tremendous difference. And I know other charities have had this same challenge, but come on, we're coming out of COVID. COVID where people with intellectual disabilities like Fragile X or autism, it could be Down syndrome, suffered as, many, as much or more than virtually every other group that you could name. They need our help. Time to rebuild. Time to celebrate being able to be in person again. But again, if you don't think that's important, I understand completely. If your circumstances don't allow, I understand that even better. So I'm just asking you to help. And you can get all information you need by simply going to mikesmoneytalks.ca, going to Money Talks Tweets, or which you can see a couple of good pictures there. I'm going to put them up this weekend. Or, of course, you can go to Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. I'm asking you, though, not to let this just push by. We need the help. And these people, and I'm talking about children to adults, the families who support them, the volunteers who are out there, really, I think, deserve our support and hope your circumstances allow you to give it. Hey, and if you want to plunge with us, even better, just send a note, info at mikesmoneytalks.ca, info at mikesmoneytalks.ca, and say, I want to plunge. I'll send you out a whole bunch of stuff so you can get your friends and family supporting us. So enough about that. Well, there's never enough about that in my view. Hey, we got a great show planned for you. I'm glad you're with us. You know, every once in a while, I come across some research, I come across a book, etc., that I think makes a terrific difference. And that's what I'm dealing with today. I'm so excited to have the author of Cobalt Red, How the Blood from the Congo Powers Our Lives. Incredible stuff. Siddharth Kara is the author, researcher, uh, an activist on modern slavery. I mean, the resume is too long. We don't have any time at all for a <laughs> for an interview, but I've got to just tell you this. He's British Academy Global Professor, Associate Professor of Human Trafficking and Modern Slavery at Nottingham University. He lectures elsewhere. Uh, he's also authored three other books on modern slavery. He's won prizes for them. Uh, the first book, I think, was turned into a Hollywood movie, Trafficked. Uh, the list is a long one. I'm just so pleased, Siddharth, that you're finding time for us here on this very important subject. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. Have you been blown away by what a revelation it has been? I mean, I'm thinking back quite a few years. I think it was Amnesty International in 2016 was talking about this, you know, that tied companies, American companies. I mean, off the top of my head, I think it was Apple, you know, exploiting mined cobalt. We knew that child labor was involved, but it seems like only thanks to your efforts, this has hit sort of the headlines. It has indeed uh, reached a wider audience. Cobalt read uh, my book, um, but you're quite right. There were NGOs, journalists uh, talking about this issue several years ago. In fact, that's what got my attention initially. Uh, my first trip was in 2018 uh, to the Congo. Um, and it's um, the fact of the matter is the companies atop the chain have known about this for many, many years. There's been quite a bit of effort to obscure these conditions from the public or to just explain them away or deny them. And my hope is that Cobalt Red uh, will serve uh, to bring the voices from the Congo, the truth on the ground, out into a world that has no idea what's happening. Uh, let's give a tiny bit of background here, and that's the importance of cobalt. How much is coming out of the Congo? What do we use it for when you say, uh, you know, that it's basically powering our lives? Let's just give a little bit of background on that side. Yeah, so people like you and me and probably just about everyone listening to our conversation cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. Cobalt is used in the manufacture of almost every lithium-ion rechargeable battery made today. So every smartphone, tablet, laptop, e-scooter, e-bike, e-anything, and crucially electric vehicles has cobalt in the battery. And about three-fourths Three-fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is mined in the Congo So, uh, and mined in utterly horrific conditions, utterly appalling conditions and degrading conditions. So we can't function without cobalt and almost all the cobalt is coming 
from horrific conditions in the Congo. Uh, let's elaborate, because one of the other things that you did that was, um, I thought, brilliant in the book was, I mean, you went, not, not only went there, you went to areas that were dangerous. You went right to, I mean, I'm sure the, the whole task wasn't very popular, but was dangerous to you personally. Uh, and I want you just to describe further the conditions that these things are taking place, that the mining is taking place in. Yeah, so I went to the mining provinces of the Congo, southeastern part of the country, many times. Uh, and it's a hellscape. Uh, it's a very violent area, uh, heavily militarized uh, uh, with the army, uh, as well as roving militias. Uh, mining companies have just destroyed the environment. They're just enormous open pit mines. As far as the eye can see, millions of trees have been clear cut. Toxic uh, mining effluents are dumped in the air and the earth. There's just a haze and a grit everywhere you go. There's this bitter taste in your mouth, your eyes burn, the people living there being poisoned every day by this mining activity. And so add to that, that there are hundreds of thousands of people, grindingly poor people, including tens of thousands of children, caked in filth and grit uh, in trenches and pits, scrounging out cobalt with pickaxes and sometimes even their bare hands to feed it up the chain into our batteries and cars. Yes, as you say, and I, I just was thinking as you were speaking there, uh, when we post this, uh, I'll also post some pictures that, uh, you know, that sort of display this because it's one of those, you have to see it to, to believe it. I, I think for a lot of people that to understand that children and others are working in these conditions is actually unbelievable to them. They never consider it. They never can imagine how horrific the conditions are. You know, that's right. Uh, it is. It's when I first stepped foot there. And every time after when I went, it was like I was going back two centuries in time to some period of colonial degradation where the people of Africa were just treated like subhumans. Uh, and and that's exactly what's happening at the bottom of cobalt supply chains. Um, it's an appalling display of callous disregard for the humanity of the people who live there uh, and the preservation of their environment. You see, we're transitioning to this green future, especially with the use of electric vehicles to, to achieve climate sustainability goals. But it is in large part through the destruction of the environment of the southeastern part of the Congo, quite apart from the people who are being destroyed because they live there. And as you say, it's been dismissed, it's been ignored, it's been passed over. Let me just ask, I mean, I know it's a straightforward or simplistic question, but okay, someone says, no, but my cobalt's different, if you know what I mean. You know, some company says, yeah, but mine's different. Is that valid? I mean, is there something called clean cobalt out there? No, there's no such thing as clean cobalt from the Congo. And remember, that's where three-fourths of the world's supply comes from. Uh, that's a fiction. That's that's a marketing concoction by tech and EV companies to make you not pay attention or look the other way and buy the next gadget and car and keep boosting their quarterly profits. Any company that claims their supply of cobalt uh, is untainted by these uh, horrific abuses and environmental destruction in the Congo is either dealing in falsehood or recklessly ignorant of the truth. The truth is there for them to see. I dare say none of these companies have ever even sent a single employee to the Congo to see the conditions for themselves under which their cobalt is being mined. So no, uh, before the cobalt ever leaves the Congo, it is already caked in misery, child labor, forced labor, hazardous conditions, injury, death, and environmental destruction. Uh I mean, my, one of my goals here today is I want people to read the book Cobalt Red uh, because I think it's, you know, you've just mentioned it, but, you know, we want an EV revolution. Well, there's no revolution. There's no environmental gain if we don't address this issue now. You know, I mean, the timeline has always been unrealistic uh, because of issues like this. But uh, this is one that I'm just wondering, you know, you've been the most prominent spokesperson here, as you say. Yeah, we've heard about these things, but most people ignored them. But you went on Joe Rogan, for example, super popular podcast, although I hear he envies money. I'm just kidding. But super popular, Joe Rogan. And it was a revelation to him. You've been in the New York Times. You've been in the L.A. Times. Uh, you know, it's cross. Are you seeing any change from that, though? Uh, are you getting any admissions? Uh, have you noticed any admissions uh, from major companies who really are supporting this? 
Well, not yet. Uh, the book's been out a couple of weeks. Yes. Uh, thankfully, it's gotten a lot of attention, um, uh, which to me is a triumph for the people of the Congo. It means their voices are being heard. Their truth is being experienced by a, a world that cannot function without their suffering. Uh, now we'll see. That's phase one. Flood the world with this truth uh, and this reality. And then phase two will be, well, what are the stakeholders going to do about it? And I think people yeah. of conscience will demand that they accept responsibility for what's happening in the Congo, that they don't just uh, charge forward with all these climate sustainability goals and transition to EVs at the expense of the degradation and destruction of the people of the Congo. That has to be addressed. That has to be sorted out. Uh, that will be the next phase of things. And I believe there is a growing community of conscience around the world, people who are learning this truth who do not want to participate in this violence and will uh, demand accountability from companies and governments to address these injustices. I might add, by the way, the book's, uh, you know, freshly out, and we talked about it earlier on this show, but uh, it's a New York Times bestseller already. You know, <laughs> that's, that to me is, I found that heartening because that meant people are interested, you know. That's exactly so right. Congratulations on that. It's, a, it's already a New York Times bestseller. And as I say, my goal here is to get people to look at it, to increase their own understanding of what's going. Uh, a couple more things here. Uh, child labor, can you just elaborate on that? I mean, that's something that people, you know, recoil against. And yet here it is prominent and been well documented up to this point. Yeah, quite right. I mean, every tech and EV company will tell you they have zero tolerance policies on child labor in their mineral supply chains. And yet there are tens of thousands of children as young as six years old. Uh, I mean, these are kindergarten age children that we, if you think about our communities, first graders caked in toxic filth and grime, uh, scrounging on their hands uh, and knees to pull cobalt out of the ground and, and for a dollar a day. Uh, now, for them, that's the difference between eating or not. Um, but, you know, they, they dig that uh, out of the ground. Cobalt is toxic to touch and breathe. There are young women with babies on their backs inhaling this toxic cobalt day in and day out, suffering untold damage to their health and well-being in this scramble. Because there's such a scramble to get all these cars sold, all these EVs sold. Uh, and, of course, you know, we've been made fools of that we have to upgrade our gadgets every time there's a new model. So that's just demand, more demand, cobalt, cobalt, cobalt. And it comes at this enormous cost to the people and especially the children in the Congo. Uh, just horrendous. Uh, can you outline the, the role that the Chinese government or the Chinese mining companies play? Because they're in huge level of control there. Absolutely. Uh, Chinese, the Chinese government cornered the global cobalt market before anyone knew what was happening. Uh, they saw what the future was. Uh, and back in 2009, they started swooping in and taking control of uh, mining uh, concessions uh, in the Congo. And so they control uh, 15 of the 19 big mining concessions in mm -hmm. the Congo. They are the chief buyers of all the child labor cobalt that's dug out of the ground that flows through their supply chain up to mainland China for refining, and they produce about 70 to 80% of the world's refined cobalt. So they dominate mining production on the ground. They are the chief buyers of child slave mine cobalt. They refine most of the cobalt, and they make half the batteries that are used in the phones and cars. And everybody, when I say everybody, the companies that sell us the phones and cars, they know this. They know who they're in business with. They know the conditions that are happening on the ground. And they just look the other way because of the scramble to keep charging forward with selling us gadgets and cars. Well, I would think, and again, what you've exposed also in the book, uh, you know, Cobalt Red is, again, I'm back to the child because that's what people sort of may have a pretense. They really care. Not that they don't care about other conditions, but you're talking, as you say, you know, a grade one student equivalent, you know, working in these conditions. Uh, I'm just amazed that so little has been uh, responded to. And I guess maybe by, I shouldn't hold out hope that the Chinese are going to do that. Look at their own human rights record. You go to Xinjiang province, et cetera, which of course you're well aware of having done so much work on modern slavery. But at the same time, so it, it comes back to the consumer, I would suspect, if we do want meaningful change. Uh, we are a crucial part of uh, future efforts to uh, address these injustices because you see you and I and everyone listening, we have been made unwitting participants in an enormous violence against the people and earth of the Congo. 
when you and I buy a phone, we don't we don't have the intention of buying a phone caked in the suffering of Congolese children. Uh, when we buy an electric vehicle, we think we're making a green choice to help save the environment. We don't think we're destroying the environment of the Congo and bringing violence and suffering, injury and death to the people of Africa. Uh, do they count less? Is their environment worth less? Um, uh, so we've been made unwitting participants in this utter hypocrisy, this moral reversion back to colonial times when somehow Africa, Africans and their world were simply to be pillaged and plundered. Uh, mm -hmm. So we have to demand, we have to demand that companies not make us accomplices in this immoral injustice. I mean, what kind of supply chain, what kind of economy transforms the degradation of Congolese children into shiny gadgets and cars? Yeah. Uh, that's what's I at mean, stake. I'm just sitting here, just shaking my head here. I just, sorry, aside, I'm not aware of them even discussing this kind of an issue, specifically, you know, cobalt, but other issues around it uh, at either like COP25, COP26, COP27. I'm, I'm losing I'm losing my uh, track of all the cops out there, but I, I'm not aware of them addressing this subject at all. No, I, the, 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 you know, the agenda, the eyes are only looking forward um, at this scramble to achieve sustainability goals. Fine. That's absolutely important. We all have a planet we need to save. But we can't save our environment by destroying theirs. Uh, we can't build our uh, rechargeable lives on the destruction of their lives. Um, and that's the injustice that is being perpetrated um, uh, by this current uh, uh, global economic order that somehow doesn't see or doesn't seem to think that the people of, uh, of Africa are worth the same as you and I and that their environment is worth saving and protecting just like ours is. Well, and again, we have to insist that gets on the agenda. Uh, like we don't have to wait for another cop. I mean, they've been ineffective, but I'm saying uh, locally at home, we talk an awful lot about the EV revolution, for example, in Canada. And, uh, you know, this is not addressed, let alone as, as you point out, well in the book it's all these other things that we do i mean you know you, you can't have uh you know a smartphone or a tablet or a laptop or whatever without uh cobalt so this is something that's got to get up the chain into a much higher level of attention and of course that's what the book's done to, to begin with but i'm just wondering uh, to what degree is this just going to fade off as I, I mentioned the joe rogan interview which was really well received but also well covered and but now what you know, have you noticed uh, that it is being dismissed or the momentum is gaining in that way? And I mean, I know it's just anecdotal on your part, but what are you feeling about that? No, I, I think uh, uh, I think something is happening. I think a movement is being born. I think that a consciousness has been awakened that there's a there's an, a dark underbelly and an unjust underbelly to this scramble that we have at the top of the chain to lead these rechargeable lives and transition to electric vehicles. Um, fine. All of that should be done. It's important to do, but it cannot come at the cost and consequence and, and, and infliction of great violence against the people in Africa. So I think, and I believe there is a movement that's being born. People of conscience have been stirred and awakened and will organize and push this forward and maybe introduce it on the world stage at the next cop, whatever, or the next world economic forum, or even locally with mm -hmm. uh, local mandates about um, renewable energy and so on that, wait a minute, um, how are we accounting for child slavery in Africa? Um, how can we get uh, achieve assurances that when we buy this electric car or when I upgrade my phone, I'm not contributing to this violence? Well, I, I can tell you, I rarely, uh feel this way about a book that, as I say, my goal is to get people to look at this, because uh, if we can do any small part here, you've done a huge part. But talking about we have to understand how it does power our lives, how all these gadgets, because you say we can't go 24 hours without them. Uh, other aspects of that, like ups, upgrading and all of that kind of stuff. We've got to address this issue. And uh, I just congratulate you wholeheartedly uh, for what you've done and continue to do to bring this forward. Uh, Cobalt Red is the name of the book, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Live. Uh, Siddharth Kara, thank you so much for finding time for us. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak. Brilliant stuff.
Time now for the quote of the week. You know, a friend of mine, he's someone who's very thoughtful, level-headed, certainly not given to hyperbole, told me this week that he didn't know who to trust on so many of these issues, especially after the revelations of censorship of experts who oppose the government's narrative on COVID. Now, I'm not going to go into that today, but I will say that the no questions allowed, including squelching any debate on the government's pandemic response, I think it's done serious harm to the country. Now, a lot of people won't agree, and I'd say rethink that. The level of distrust has grown dramatically. It's seriously undermined our mainstream institutions, too. Now, my friend's saying he doesn't know who to trust. Well, that's a mild form of the fallout. Some feel much angry at, angry at being misled, at times with what Dr. Anthony Fauci called noble lies. That's lying to the public for their own good, at least according to people like Dr. Fauci. Well, that happened. Government's goal, and it was aided by the health bureaucracy and much of the mainstream media, was to manage the public, never to inform us in order to let individuals make their own decisions. I don't see any sign, by the way, that they realize the damage they've done to their own credibility and trust. Which brings me to my quote of the week, and it's back to the pandemic. It's a new report out by 12 researchers from internationally recognized universities around the world entitled Physical Interventions to Interrupt or Reduce the Spread of Respiratory Viruses. It was published by Cochrane Library. And again, listen to the whole thing here. In looking at nine studies, I mean, the studies covered 20, uh, 277,000 people. The researchers found that, in quotes, wearing a mask may make little to no difference in how many people caught a flu-like illness slash COVID-like illness and probably makes little or no difference in how many people have flu slash COVID confirmed by a laboratory test. And again, they're looking at huge studies. They went on to state, in quotes, Wearing N95 slash P2 respirators probably makes little to no difference in how many people have confirmed flu and may make little to no difference in how many people catch a flu-like illness or respiratory illness. End of quote. Well, the study's been criticized, by the way, because of its use of randomized studies as opposed to population-based studies, which suggests that the studies may be debated for years. But that's the point as will other issues like the efficacy of lockdowns or should we have cost or the cost of closing schools and so many other aspects. The point is that our understanding is furthered by those debates, by those questions and respectful discussion. But that's not what happened with COVID, where the no questions allowed attitude prevail. That leads me to the quote of the week by John Turley, writing for the Center for Disease Control on their website in quotes, the latest review will not conclusively answer the scientific questions around mass efficacy, but it should answer any lingering questions over the harm of censorship. We never had a serious debate because of the government-corporate media alliance to snuff out dissenting views on pandemic policies. The result may have been avoidable emotional, emotional economic, and social harm to the population as a whole. End of quote. That should be one of the massive lessons coming out of COVID, that the no questions allowed, do not debate, do not question. Well, that's the stuff of totalitarian regimes. That's the stuff of no progress. That's the stuff of really losing an opportunity to refine the approach we're taking. And as, as Mr. Turley says, the results in so many instances were negative and could have been avoided. I want to bring Mike Levy in right now. You know, Mike, last week we said, gee, I wonder if there's going to be a time when we're not talking interest rates. And, and I'm saying the reason is the impact that's having, whether it's your stocks, you know, this week we think rates are up, this week they're down, whatever it is, it's a huge impact. That means your pension. That means the Canada pension if you don't have an RSP too. Obviously, real estate being impacted. I mean, I've got this long list that are directly impacting us as individuals. You know, plus, by the way, if you know companies might pass on that extra interest cost and even higher prices coming at us so that's why we've got to do it but this week again i mean the thing that's getting so difficult and we've been alluding to it is it's which way is the wind blowing this week i mean we're interpreting what the federal reserve and the central bank of canada is going to do but you know they've been telling a pretty similar story let's look at the data and we'll make our decisions but man the market seems one week this next week that 
Well, it is exactly that. The Fed and uh, the, the Bank of Canada. And if you listen to Tiff Macklem a couple, three weeks ago, we're going to leave the interest rates where they are right now. We're going to see what happens. We're going to uh, be data dependent. And um, all of a sudden, he's coming back a week, 10 days later and saying, boy, with what's going on, the employment numbers, the numbers we're getting, well, you know, maybe we're going to have to act to raise interest rates. Well, that wasn't even in his lexicon. I've got to say for Jerome Powell, he says, we're raising rates, we're going to raise rates more, and we have reasons for doing it. And as you said, we got two numbers this week We just underlined it. Um, workers, and we used to talk about this all the time, Mike, workers filing for uh, first-time unemployment uh, benefits held nearly steady last week. And despite layoffs, uh, uh, they, they actually uh, had 194,000 new applications. Well, that's just down low, Mike. That hasn't climbed at all, uh, regardless of what's going on with uh, inflation, regardless of what's going on with the economy, we think may be softening. And it's remained below the 2019 pandemic average of about 212,000 since the start of the year. So there's not people lining up for unemployment. And by the way, one more fact, Feb 2021, that first time claim came in at 812,000. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've got one for you coming back at you. I look at the January restaurant sales. We're like smashing records, you know, like no sign that people had laid off spending, despite the fact that they actually say things like that. But I've got a feeling when you see the stats, we've really got to be careful. They're too broad when it comes to the population. There are clearly, and I'm just getting a broad number, half the population is really can't afford what's been going on. And especially as every month progresses, it becomes more owners. Maybe you can't afford higher prices for one month or three months or six months. Well, now we're into 10, 11 months. And clearly, uh, that's really damaging a lot of people. And I don't, I absolutely don't want to disregard that. But there's another set who aren't getting punished or, or, or can afford it. That's a better way of putting it. Pardon yeah. me. A better way of putting it. So they're still out eating. And that that's what's producing these kind of mixed numbers. And, and no wonder the Fed's saying, I'm standing back or the central bank in Canada. I'm standing back. I need more definitive action. Uh, Mike, you, you've just hit on something so important because I was taking a look this week. This is the other stat that came out is the producer price index, the U.S. supplier prices. It's actually prices for wholesale goods that are going to eventually move out into the retail market. Rose 6% in January from a year earlier. And that's uh, like another sign of still stubborn inflation pressures in the economy. Yeah, it generally generally reflects supply conditions. Uh, it was slower than December, six and a half percent gain, and markedly uh, down from eleven point seven percent in March two thousand twenty-two. Those are all just numbers, Mike. Wholesale numbers are up six and a half percent. If you don't think that's going to be passed right through to the consumer. And, and maybe we have come off a bit in uh, your retail prices but and, and a bit on inflation, maybe steadying out a little bit, but there's still price rises to come. Yeah, and I think that's why the market this week at least changed its tune uh, to back where it was three weeks ago. And then last week, you know, that kind of, as I say, it's going back and forth, but and that can still change. But it, it, that's why the market is saying, and, and that's why, of course, Tiff Macklin said, higher for longer. That's been the phrase they've used that don't look for that big pivot or turnaround point. Even in the fall, they've been saying expect higher levels of inflation, you know, back, still at these what they would call unacceptable numbers, you know, double what that even though the month to month's improving. But it looks like, yeah, it's, it's making a good case that the, they just don't have the, uh, the green light yet to really, uh, you know, lower interest rates. I mean, not at all, in fact. In fact, so they say higher. And if I was to give one piece of advice, remember, I don't give advice, but one piece of maybe common sense advice is just don't look, as you just said, for that turn coming anytime soon. I think that you should approach the way you live, the way you spend, the way you're going to buy real estate, the way you're going to buy a new car or whatever you're going to do, debt you're going to take on is that this is not going to be a dramatic change tomorrow. I think you've got to look forward saying right now is the norm. 
This is yep. what's going on. Inflation's what's going on. Higher interest rates is what's going on. Don't look for that to change. And I'm, that's just a bit of my personal feelings, even if I was just telling that to my kids, Mike. I just want to finish again, acknowledging how difficult the time is for some people, though. And, uh, you know, a Blacklock reporter came out with an internal uh, federal survey saying that, you know, basically 38 percent of Canadians are borrowing for daily needs. You know, so there's a big chunk uh, of people who are really suffering. And I worry as we roll on here uh, that someone who, you know, had their five year mortgage taken out, Four and a half years ago. Now, four months from now, five months will be renewing. That's when they'll feel the pain, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a rolling feeling, uh, you know, not much progress made on the food front. I don't think there will be. So, yeah, it's still high prices that are unaffordable. It looks like from the polls between 40 and 60 percent of Canadians are feeling it, you know, in a significant level. But at the same time, they're the ones who are paying the price. You know, they're the ones who but not enough. Not enough people, not enough decline in the overall economy to lower rates. So, yeah, we're kind of stuck this way. It looks like, hey, this week, next week, we can pretend we're not stuck this way, the way things are going. But, yeah, it does look, the central banks have been saying, hold on, for, for several weeks. We're just looking at the data. The data is not spelling out lower rates. So one last word, and that is pretend. You just said we could pretend, <laughs> but we would have to be pretending. I think we've got to keep hitting with yeah. facts and uh, maybe try and soften it and pretend a little bit, but don't go to the bank with that. Yeah. Consensus is we're at least going to get another bump, but some are now thinking maybe more than that. We'll have to see what the numbers say. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. The casual attitude by politicians and the public over the massive buildup in government debt and unfunded liabilities for pensions. By the way, that means, hey, they've promised these kind of payouts for our pensions, but they don't have enough money set aside. But that whole thing should be on the list of the biggest dangers to our standard of living. And let me be clear, we're already seeing it in many countries. The stress in the financial system brought on by excessive debt is becoming evident and threatens the financial system. It threatens the currency system, you know, because central banks print money to fund government spending and interest payments, just like they've done during the pandemic, during the energy crisis in the EU. But the fallout of excessive debt, as I said, is already obvious in some countries. In Canada, the mantra has been, we can afford the record buildup in government debt. Hey, but that's just nonsense if you don't give me what your assumptions are. I mean, what about interest rates? What are you saying they're doing? Domestic growth, commodity prices, or the strength of our export markets, principally the U.S.? I mean, the validity of the statement by big government advocates that the debt's affordable is dependent on a huge array of variables, and many of them are outside our control. And the ones that are in our control, like domestic economic growth, are demonstrably not a focus of the federal government, which is why the base case for the OECD predicts Canada per capita GDP to grow only seven-tenths of 1% per annum over 220 to 230. I mean, that places us dead last amongst the other countries. Now, here's a hint. Maybe you should call it a newsflash. Weak economic growth makes government debt far less affordable, and the impact could be catastrophic. I mean, the irony is that the very people who push bigger government, push more borrowing, more spending, are the ones who push measures that restrict economic growth. I mean, that guarantees a serious problem, which brings me to my shocking stat of the week. And I'm looking at the U.S. debt situation why? Because it's the most important in the world. It's the reserve currency, the biggest economy in the world. Well, the U.S. national debt's now $31.4 trillion, plus trillions more in unfunded liabilities, for which promises have been made, like in Medicare and other health things and their Social Security, but the money's not been set aside. And as interest costs rise, along with the growth of spending on major, say, health care programs and Social Security, that number's going to keep growing. And the numbers are so big, they're incomprehensible. But the consequences won't be. The big question for you, your personal financial situation, is who are governments or how are governments going to handle the debt as it grows faster than government revenues? Well, simply put, I think they've already given us a big hint. As I said, they printed up money during the pandemic and the energy crisis. They created it out of thin air. But the thing is, over time, that's going to diminish the purchasing power of the currency. 
There are literally dozens of examples already, as I said, in emerging markets. The currency gets debased, which is reflected in runaway inflation, and then interest rates skyrocket. Interest payments are not like other spending, though. They're not discretionary. They must be paid. And it comes at a time of massive individual debt, too. And it looks like as prices and interest rates rise and the increasing number of people are forced to borrow just to get by, well, it's interesting to see that the limits on credit cards are actually getting increased. I mean, the U.S. aggregate limit on credit cards was just raised to a record $4.4 trillion, but it was up $888 billion in the fourth quarter alone. We got the New York Fed quarterly report on household debt and credit. Total household debt in the fourth quarter of 222 rose $394 billion more. It's now nearly $17 trillion. I mean, it's incredible. So what, what does that mean to us? Do we care? Yes, we do. Because you should prepare yourself for the turmoil to come. You can get your own credit picture in order. That's probably number one. And that's why on this show, we've been recommending locking in your interest payments. You could, when you get spare money, pay down anything that's not deductible in terms of debt, where the interest rates aren't deductible. Do it whenever you can. Now, I know I appreciate that's easy for me to say, but I think it is essential for people to do because there's one guarantee about the massive debt buildup. There are going to be consequences on both the country level and the individual level, and you've got to be prepared. Time now to talk a little real estate, and I've got Ozzy Jurek with me, of course, ozbuzz.ca. Hey, Ozzy, I was thinking of you this week. I, I saw this number by the Canadian Real Estate Association saying January was the worst start to a year since 2009, and I said, no kidding, Sherlock. I think, Ozzy, you've been chronicling both here and on Ozbuzz every month since last February, and what, they're finally catching up to this? Well, yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, the Main Street media in general has gone away from saying prices are actually rising to realize that they're not. I mean, the Canadian Real Association looked at across the board, sales are down 31%. And across the board, I mean, in all of Canada, prices are down by almost 20%. That's, of course, Toronto, Vancouver, you take it out, their sales are up down 50% and their prices are down more than the 18%. But that's in, in, in general, it's not been a great month. I, I'm always, you know, the pricing thing is always difficult because whether you use the average price or the benchmark price or all of this kind of stuff, uh, you know, it, it comes back down to if you're in the market to buy, look at your neighborhood or something or look at similars at least and, and get a better idea where prices are. But as you say, we've been chronicling the fall there. But And again, we've also been chronicling and, and singling out some markets because they haven't been, uh, the price side hadn't fallen. That's the interesting thing. The association said that uh, like some prices are dropping much harder in Ontario and BC, but Calgary, Regina, Saskatoon and St. John's, uh, there the prices hold steady, and some of the East Coast markets seem to really have hit the bottom. But remember, they never went crazily up like we did, so they're, yeah. they're much more steady. But the whole idea about averages is, of course, you put one foot in, in hot water and the other one in cold water, you're supposed to be lukewarm. No, you're going to be very hot or very yeah. cold. But so the averages are a grain of salt, but they are showing the real things that are going on with real sales in the market today. So the average price is down from 750 in Canada to 610,000 on average, and that's a fact. Well, let me ask about the listing side, too, though, because, you know, I've read some headlines like this listings are way down. There's no listings or what have you, you know, because sellers, I guess they're saying that sellers just don't feel the pressure, aren't willing to accept the market as it is. But, uh, you know, in Osbys, you've been, you know, telling a little bit of a different story, like cleaning that, that kind of comment up. Well, it's true that new listings are down, uh, you know, compared to, say, last year. But active listings, which are all the listings that haven't sold until this month are now put together with everything. That's an active listing. Anything that's unsold. Well, you look at Toronto, the active listings are up 169%. So maybe there are a few fewer new listings, but a huge amount of higher listings. Even Surrey in the condo market has a 131% increase in active listings. So you add all that up, there's more product for sale. Okay, I, I'm gonna I'm throwing something at you out of left field here, Ozzy. Yeah, you know, because I was looking at the foreclosure rates are growing in the states. It's been a long time since we've talked foreclosures, but there's something similar. And I'm not talking about a foreclosure in Canada. It's not the same story here. We love our mortgages, at least to pay them off. We do everything we can. But here's the thing: we're back to this old question. 
as you've told us, you know, going back years and, uh, you know, about stink bids. So tell me a little bit, tell me what a stink bid is, and then I, I'm going to follow, I got to follow up for that. Well, actually, I mean, of course, the, the joke is that you, you make an offer solo that it actually smells, right? But, but the idea that stink bits are bad is wrong. A stink bit, a vendor rather has a stink bit than no bit. I mean, it's a starting point. And certainly, when I look at the marketplace that we've gone through the last few years, like we talked about it before, for some reason, a good market is where we pay 100,000 more than the owner even wants. Well, now the buyer is down. He looks at the average price in, in Vancouver, we're down 400,000 from 2.3 million to 1.9 million, and sorry, from 1.9 to 1.3. Now, what do people think? It's going to go down forever? No, I think now may not be the perfect time, but it's a time to get a good realtor. Make sure that you don't fall in love with you, if you're an investor. You know, you don't want to, you want to make sure that you find something that, that you like for an investment. Maybe it's cash flowing and make those offers and put it in writing and, and make a, yeah, a very low offer. Now, seriously, I don't try to expose your own personal finances or anything like that, Ozzy, but I mean, I'm surely you've done this before. The idea is that you leave a number on the table. Look, in life, you don't get what you deserve. You get what you negotiate, right? So when you go into a sales center, I don't care whether the market is hot or not. And I want 800000 for this unit and saying, look, you know, do you think, could I make a six hundred eighty thousand dollars offer? And they're saying, are you crazy? That's a stink bit. And I said, well, you can, I would buy it for six hundred eighty thousand now. I mean, leave the number on the table and your business card and your contact information. The salesman will say, get lost. But he'll go to the meeting, the sales meeting on Monday morning. The owner says, what was the weekend like? Well, we had reasonable turnout, but it was only this nutcase offering 680. But he said it could be cash and it could close quick. The owner may say, give me his number. And he may call me. I might negotiate with me. Look, instead of reducing the price, I'll give you a car. How's that? Or I'll give you a furniture package. And the idea is, of course, he doesn't want the price to be shown to be less. That affects the whole building. But believe me, right now, they are the best deals out of there. No GST, 5% down, furniture packages, all sorts of great stuff. And what does the average buyer do? Hold back. I'm scared. If you have a bright future in your mind for British Columbia, for Canada, and the world, and if you think we're going to muddle through like we always have, this is your time to buy Ozzy, it's a simple formula. I mean, we're talking demand right now. And, you know, when you have that level of newcomers coming in and there's other factors that come involved. I mean, there's people already in the country who want to buy. Maybe they apply for permanent residency. I mean, who knows? Student visas, that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is uh, Desjardins says, you know what? We need 50 percent jump in housing starts. Well, you know, if you're already in the market or you're trying to get in, that's why maybe the bad news of the moment becomes good news later on. That's certainly been the case historically. Well, yeah, as long as you believe in the future overall, we've gone through se several tough times before, I mean, really bad times. I mean, look, in 9-11, the Dow Jones closed for a week. I mean, we've had some tough times. We've always come through. So if you believe that, you want to be in a market where you can, the realtor has time to be with you, where you can make an offer, where you can keep an eye on a specific market, where you get the house assessed, all of those wonderful things. I'm not saying go out and buy everything, but look for that deal of a lifetime and learn the concept of so what next. If that doesn't work out, you have made a low offer and this is what you were going to do, go on to the next one. Just one more quick thing. The other thing I'd suggest, and you've been suggesting, is, you know, someone, many people came up at the World Outlook says, and I'm considering the real estate market, and I said, well, listen to what Ozzy's got to say coming up here. But I also said, go out and get pre-approved. Go out and get pre-approved by four different people. There's no obligation here. But I just worry, I, I, I talked to several young couples, actually, and I'm thrilled to have them at the Outlook, and I'm just saying, have you done that yet? Go do it. Be prepared. And listen, this week we were able to get 4.6% insured mortgages, investor mortgages as low as 5%. And this may change as it travels with the mortgage and the bond market. But in my history, 5%, not a bad rate. 1.5% was an outlier, right? Well, yeah, all of us who got a 13% mortgage are nodding our head at this point. <laughs> Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. I'll remind people to go to ozbuzz.ca. Thanks, Mike. And I just wanted to, to let you know that I like cooking and, and I like cooking with wine. Uh, sometimes I even add it to the food. Ozzy Jurek, Ozbuzz.ca.
Let's go live to the trading desk now. Victor Dare joins me on the line. Uh, hey, Vic, you know, kind of interesting for me. I was talking about this with Michael Levy. I don't think the Federal Reserve has particularly changed its tune. They've said we're data-driven, rates are going higher, we don't have inflation where we want. That's been reiterated. But it seemed like the market was disappointed or did have at least some reaction. You know, I mean, they were very optimistic about a pivot. Then it was certainly going to have, a, you know, some sort of topping in rates. And now that seems to have dissipated and the market's got a different opinion. But we haven't seen a big reaction in the stocks. I, w- I would have thought of a bigger reaction, that's all. But we do seem to have changed attitudes about what the Fed's going to do. Well, that's certainly, we've changed attitudes in the interest rate market and the currency market for sure. We've had some sharp moves higher in, in uh, not only short rates, but the bond yields as well. I'd say with the stock market, Mike, I've been puzzled too. You know, I thought, gee whiz, here interest rates are moving sharply higher. Uh, and go back to Chairman Powell has told us time and time again, listen, we are not planning to cut interest rates this year. But as I've noted on my blog a few times, the market's been fighting the Fed on that. Market's going, oh, no, we're smarter than you. We know you're going to have to fold partway through the year. And by the time we get to December, interest rates are going to be lower. But now the market's kind of coming around to, if I can put it in the vernacular, saying, hey, he was right all along. Yeah. Well, as we've commented several times, I have with Mike Levy that, you know, what was still amazing to me, it was don't fight the Fed when the market was when the rates were coming down. And all of a sudden, let's give it a black eye on the rates when he says the rates going up. But it is that shifting sentiment. And people should understand that's what makes it a difficult market. As you say, some reacted, but some haven't at this point yet to the degree you'd think, because what they're they're now thinking, Victor, I mean, uh, you watch the market in this way, what it's sort of suggesting, but even a half point rise in the interest rates in the states coming up? Well, there's two things here, that the Fed is going to go higher and they're going to stay higher for longer. So I look at the forward strip and I see out in December of this year, the short-term interest rates had increased by 80 basis points, nearly a full percentage point since the 2nd of February, just in the last three weeks. So that that, that is the market, I guess, conceding ground to Chairman Powell, that they actually are going to stay higher for longer. Okay, they do that. But really, we, this rally we've had in the stock market off the December lows, I mean, some of it's been short covering, certainly. And that I have to say, here's a, a, a candidate for most spectacular rise. Tesla has doubled since the first week of January. I mean, what is that? That's like four weeks ago. It's, so there's there's been a lot of almost FOMO buying and it doesn't seem to be, you know, worried sick, that's for sure, uh, about this sharp rise in interest rates. So I've been a little bearish on stocks, but when I see that the stocks aren't breaking when interest rates have been jammed up like this, I, I am not betting on the short side of stocks right here. Yeah, but the other thing is that, as you said, the markets, and I want to pat you on the back here because, uh, gosh, I'm going back two weeks ago on the show and you made it very clear. You said, I think we've had a turn date here. I think we've had a turning. Well, we certainly did, you know, as you've chronicled on victoradare.ca, gold's down, what, 140 bucks? You know, U.S. dollars had a nice little bounce in there. Uh, You know, interest rates have gone up. So it's not like we haven't had a reaction. It's really the one that seems uh, the outlier seems to be the stocks not yet reacting to the degree. I'm still I'm still thinking they might, but yet they haven't. Well, exactly. Uh, I sit here, I, I am so fascinated with correlations. You know, one market moves and another market moves. I'm always paying attention to correlations. And the correlations have been working perfectly between the interest rate market and the currency market, but the equities have been odd. Now, the alternate view here is that the equity market, they used to call the bond market the smart money and the stock market the dumb money. I mean, that's too simple, but you know, maybe it suits this argument that maybe we've just had this momentum in the stock market and like they don't want to give it up. They're sort of thinking, okay, so you're going to throw a little bit of higher interest rates at us, but once well, that's once once we can digest that, it's going to be clear sailing on the other side. So, you know, buy, baby, buy. If the stock market does start to weaken here, I'll probably be all over it on the short side because I think, you know, it, it needs to reprice lower to be in sync with what's happened with interest rates. Let me risk it oversimplifying to finish here, Vic, because I do look at what will propel the market higher. Like, what do we need to propel it higher at this point? And I just want people to be aware of there certainly has been a contraction of the money supply. 
you know, flooding the money with uh, flooding the markets and the economy with money. That's what pushed helped push prices up. A lot of buyers in the market too. There has been a contraction, and you know, to go back to monetary theory and Milton Friedman, you know, that's going to determine the direction. So that's also one of my warning signs. I don't want to completely ignore that. So I'm still in that view, Vic, that. I want to figure out, okay, what's going to propel the market significantly higher at this point? You know, it's not going to be interest rates. I don't think there's a surprise. I think the Fed's made it clear. Not a big surprise coming on the downside of interest rates. Money supply shrinking. So I'm not sure what it is. So I'm back to Mr. Cautious. And you're laughing at me right now because you know what else have you ever been. But there you go. (laughs) Well, Mr. Cautious, I mean, when I look at the money market mutual funds in the States, you can get 5%. Uh, like on, let's call it a GIC equivalent. There's more money in the money market funds than ever. And I don't see that just as, as sort of dry powder on the sideline that's going to come running into the stock market and, and wish they'd been in earlier. I see that as people maybe are just, they're, they're, they're okay with getting 5% with no worries and not getting knocked around by the uh, volatility we've seen in the stock market. So yeah, uh, and I, one last thing, I guess, Mike, to be clear here is the the time frame that we're talking about. We're, I'm talking about a pretty short time frame here. You know, where the stock market is at the end of this year, I have no idea. You know, I'm not I'm just looking over the next month or two. Yeah, but that's why I love hearing your perspective, because I'm, you know, a long term kind of guy, you know, like plant your seeds when you're convinced that the variables are all in your favor, or all but probabilities in your favor. And you're looking at that in the the, 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 the minute of the markets and what's happening in there. And that's why I found it so valuable to hear your point of view. And people can find that when they go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Vic, go out and have a terrific week. And just think about Ozzy and I getting ready for the polar plunge. You're lucky you don't live in town. No, I, I dream about it every night. I, I wish yeah. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Saying that with a heavy <laughs> dose of sarcasm. I'll come back. I got a goofy award. Time now for this week's goofy award. Well, by now you may have heard that International Trade Minister Mary Ng awarded a $22,000, well, it's $22,790 contract to a company named Pomp and Circumstance Public Relations. Well, that's a Toronto consulting firm run by her longtime friend and CBC TV power and politics commentator, Amanda Alvaro. Ms. Ng said the payments were for two coaching sessions. I hope you're listening to this. Two coaching sessions on Zoom, April 10th and May 3rd, 2020. The total time of the two Zoom calls was about eight hours. I mean, think about that. We're talking paying out $22,790 for eight hours work or something like that. That's that's $2,849, $2,849 tax dollars per hour. I mean, my gosh, to borrow the famous line, remember that movie Network? Uh, screened by Peter Lynch. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Oh my gosh, though. I mean, the trouble is big government advocates across the country are going to take it. They'll support it. They'll push for more despite the relentless stream of reports from successive auditor generals about big money misspent, but also big money actually missing. Hey, we got another this week uh, from the auditor general, Karen Hogan. Upwards of 15 billion tax dollars were sent to ineligible businesses under the $100.6 billion Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy Program. What's more, the government doesn't show any intention of trying to recover it. But I'm digressing. Back to Minister Mary Ng. And here's the goofy. In her defense, she stated that public office holders should undergo more ethics training. Really, as if Training is necessary. I mean, she's been an MP for five years, 20 years around government service, etc. You got to trained to not understand or to understand that handing a grossly overpriced, untendered contract to a friend would raise some questions, especially in a government where the leader has been cited three times for ethics. And I mean, what is it? Five senior liberals have had ethics breaches. I mean, and if common sense is not sufficient to avoid such an obvious problem as giving a $22,790 contract for eight hours work to a friend, then surely the ethics code would give you some guidelines. I mean, it's been in place for 17 years. 
As Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion stated in quotes, there is simply no excuse for contracting with a friend's company, end of quote. And as for the need of more ethics training, are you kidding me? Think about this. Since assuming his office in 2018, the Commissioner's Ethics Office has given 140 presentations on ethics and conflict of interest. Mr. Dion himself has presented over 40 times. It also offers virtual training to any MP or staffer who wants to learn more about their obligations under the law. They've also got people available to answer any questions, but somehow Ms. Ng's defense is there needs to be more training. But as Commissioner Dion says in quotes, giving a contract to a friend, I don't think you require much training to understand this isn't appropriate. You know, one of the consequences that needs to be pointed out, and this is something I talk about all the time, because I know the underlying foundation of society, of finance and economics is trust. But as Mr. Dion points out, the latest findings of uh, the firm Edelman, they have something called the trust barometer that people follow. It finds that government officials are the least trusted societal leaders today. Think about that. With only 42% of the survey respondents saying they trust them. And I don't know what that 42% is thinking, by the way. But sadly, we've got a lack of accountability. We've got constantly misleading statements. We've got self-serving actions that put their political fortunes ahead of the public, suggest that that trend is going to continue, at least until we say enough. And we are not saying enough. There are tons of people in this country who say that's okay, and that's their right. But I don't, because I guarantee the social, financial, and economic consequences of this continual decline in trust, in confidence, in government, well, the consequences are profound. Hey, that's all the time I have this week. I'm really glad you were with us, and I do appreciate that. And I really appreciate when you tell friends uh, about Money Talks Tweet or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. But, you know, the other thing I want to just reiterate today is one of the big reasons that I do Money Talks is I need a team with me to support Special Olympics. And certainly Victor does, and Ozzy and Michael and Grant, who runs the place. Dustin's joined us, uh, Nina Parente again. Uh, but I want your help. And I've put that out there. We're doing the polar plunge. I joke about it because it is a joke to see me and Lederhosen jumping into cold water and crying. But this is time to be stand up and be counted. We're talking about people in our society with intellectual disabilities. And I don't want to be preachy about this because you've got to make your own decision. But they are often the most forgotten group. As I said, they were eight times more likely to die during COVID because of other comorbidities. I know, but you never heard about them. You didn't hear about the dangers of being in group homes. I'm telling you, they are completely off the radar. And I could tell you chapter and verse about how our government's attitude is about that. And it's sad. But that isn't for you. Today, I'm saying we need your help. If you could just go to Mike's Money Talks tweets or go to uh, Michael Campbell's Facebook and especially go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. And if you want to join us in the plunge, well, let me know that because I want you to get your friends to donate. And, of course, you can just do that by sending a note to us at info at mikesmoneytalks.ca and put, I'm going to plunge, and we'll send you all the information. But I need your donations. You know what? They're tax deductible. This is a group that really merits our attention. Obviously, I think so. I know I go on about it. But you know what? They're worth it. I hope you can help me. In the meantime, have a terrific week. Mm -hmm.